This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they replied, We are able. And then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten other disciples heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. And so Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. And so, Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word. We pray that we would hear not just the words of men, but the words of God. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to take that as my text this morning from Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning at verse 35. In fact, Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1006. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, and beginning at verse 35. And this morning I want to talk about worldly greatness... Worldly greatness versus greatness with God. Worldly greatness versus greatness with God. Indeed, indeed, what is greatness to you? And how would you define it? And based on your own personal definition of greatness, would you say that you find yourself more in agreement with the world or more in agreement with God? One of the things that might be said about worldly greatness is that worldly greatness really does seem great. (laughs) I think maybe that's why we have such trouble with it. Most of us are familiar with worldly greatness. That is to say, we, 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 we know it when we see it. And not a few people and down the ages have desired to be great as the world defines greatness, including apparently even Jesus' own disciples. And so we have it in this text from Mark chapter 10 and beginning at verse 35 where we read that John and, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, Rabbi, if you like, We want you to do for us what we ask of you. 
Now, James and John were like Jesus from the Galilee, although they lived, they weren't in Nazareth, they lived down close to the lake. They were fishermen, and they were a part of their father Zebedee's fishing business. Uh, and they had been with Jesus more or less uh, from the very beginning of Jesus' uh, uh, public ministry. And even now they're with Jesus, uh, even as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem uh, for the very last time. Indeed, Jesus is on his way to, to Jerusalem to suffer and to die, even as he's been saying all along. In fact, I believe this, if you notice verse 32, that, which comes just before our text, uh, this is about the third time, at least in the Gospel of, of Mark, that Jesus mentions this. Notice verse 32 there in your Bible. And they, that is Jesus and his disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem. It says going up because Jerusalem is actually... Uh, and on a high spot uh, in, uh, the, in Palestine, in the Holy Land. They were, they, were go, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. <laughs> you might have thought that he'd be walking you know, behind them like, oh man, i got to go to Jerusalem and i got to die. He's leading them, and notice what Mark says. And they were amazed. And those who were following were, were afraid. Like, what is going to happen? And it says, and then taking the twelve again aside, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Verse 33, and saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, referring to himself, it's a title that comes from the, from the prophet Daniel in chapter 7, referring to him, the, 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 the Messiah, it's a messianic reference. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, to the religious elite, the religious establishment to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, rise again. And so James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they are in the midst of all of this. And they say, uh, hey, Jesus, <laughs> we want you to do whatever we ask you to do for us. In verse 36, Jesus says to them, well, what is it that you want me to do for you? <laughs> I, it, was, it was really a good response, isn't it? He might have said, are you kidding me over here? I mean, I'm on my way. We are climbing. We are on, you know, climbing to get to Jerusalem. I've just told you what I'm going to suffer. And you want me to do you favors? But Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, and they say to Jesus, grant us to sit one on your right hand and my brother on the left in your glory. When you usher in your messianic kingdom, we want to sit right next to you. Now, of course, in Jesus' day, to sit at the immediate right and the immediate left of a king was to assume a position of highest honor. And not just honor, but power, seated at the right and the left hand of the king. A position of greatness. Second only to the king himself. And that's exactly what James and John were seeking for themselves. 
They were seeking prestige, power, honor. And then we read in verse 38, and Jesus responded to them, you don't know what you're asking. Oh, and they're thinking, no, you don't understand. We know exactly what we're asking for. We can see it. We can see ourselves seated at your left and your right hand. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And he continues, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now in the Old Testament, and Jesus carries this over into the New Testament, the idea of a cup oftentimes was a metaphor for suffering or a metaphor for what God hands to his enemies. It's like, drink the cup of my wrath. And that seems to be what Jesus is referring to. In Jeremiah 25, for instance, God speaking to the prophet, he, tell, he directs the prophet and he, God uses this metaphor. We read there Jeremiah 25 and verse 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Jeremiah the prophet, Take from my hand, Jeremiah, the cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink of it. And so when we come to the 14th chapter of Mark, you remember Jesus is praying his passion would begin later in the evening when he's jostled about and, and uh, uh, accosted and hit. Jesus says in chapter 14 and verse 36, Abba, which is the Aramaic, Abba, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup. <laughs> Remove this suffering. Remove what I'm faced with, that you're going to make me drink. Remove this cup from me, and yet not what I will, but your will be done. And so that's what he's referring to. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And then Jesus also uses baptism as a metaphor for, for the same thing, a metaphor of, of uh, of suffering, the suffering that he'll uh, 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 undergo, sort of suffering washing over him like the waters of baptism, over which he has no control before he assumes his position as king of kings and lord of lords. And so Jesus asks James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? You want to sit at my right hand and my left hand? Are you willing to walk the road that goes before the enthronement? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In verse 39 they said, yeah, we are. Ironically, when James and John are given the opportunity to join Jesus in his suffering, <laughs> they run away, as, all, as do all of the other disciples. In fact, in this same Gospel of Mark and in chapter 14, we read this beginning at verse 32. And they, Jesus and his disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane, that was the the, on the Mount of Olives, a garden there, and the olive trees, and so on. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And then notice, and then he took his inner three, 
which, two of which included the sons of Zebedee. Peter, James, and John. As you read the Gospels, Jesus would go and do something, but then he'd only take Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. And this is the same James and John. So he says to the whole group, the twelve sit here, or the eleven, because Judas is out making mischief. He says, sit here for a while, and then he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch. Keep vigil, is what he's saying. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on the ground and he prayed. If it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me and yet not what I will, but what you will. And immediately Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs with the chief priests, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And when, and, and, and when Judas came, he went up to Jesus at once and he said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and seized him. And verse 50, and all the disciples left and fled. <laughs> we are! <laughs> and so back to verse 39, Jesus said to James and John, the cup that, that I drink, you will drink. Not now, but you'll drink it. And the baptism with, with, uh, which, with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Indeed, you will suffer for me in your own time. But to sit on my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, Jesus said, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Not a subtle reference to Jesus saying, that's not what I do. That is the prerogative of the Father. And whoever sits on my right and my left which sort of makes me curious as to who we will see seated on his right and his left. That is the Father's job. And Mark says in verse 41, And when the ten, that is the, the rest of the disciples, heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. Of course they were! <laughs> but not because they were offended by James and John's uh, uh, ambition. Rather, they were indignant because James and John had beat them to it. <laughs> That's what I wanted to ask. That's what I wanted to ask. Indeed, all of the disciples saw their association with Jesus, as one reads the Gospels, as an opportunity to be great. As the world defines greatness. And each of them thought that they were more deserving than the others. In fact, you read in the Gospels, they were constantly arguing amongst themselves about who was the greatest among them. And so in this very same Gospel of Mark, just a chapter back, chapter 9, we read beginning at verse 33, And Jesus and his disciples came to Capernaum, that was a town right there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, in the, sort of on the, on the northwest side of that. It says, And Jesus and his disciples came to Capernaum, and when, and when he was in the house, he asked them, Hey, by the way, what, what were you discussing on the road? But they kept silent. For on the way or on the road, they, were, they had argued with one another about who amongst them was the greatest. 
And so there you have it, worldly greatness, which is probably what most of us think of when we think of greatness. But what of greatness with God, or what we might call kingdom greatness? You have this world, and then you have the kingdom of come. You have this present age and the age yet to come, about which Jesus had many things to say and how things work. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Those who abase themselves shall be exalted, and those who exalt themselves shall be abased, and on and on, and even as we'll see here. Well, the first thing to note is that the greatness, that greatness with God has nothing to, to do whatsoever with worldly Greatness. Indeed, notice the verses of 41 through 43. Notice and, and uh, verses 42 through 43. And Jesus called them to him. Try to get this all settled. Now they're arguing with one another. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles. Now this is... He's, no doubt referring to the Romans. The Romans are, 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 have them under martial law. The, the Romans are a police state running their own country of Israel. And so he makes a reference to them. They're the most, I mean, when you talk about power, man, they had power. And everybody mostly were pretty scared. Jesus called them to him and he said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them lorded over those over whom they rule, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. We're not going to, the kingdom is not going to be the, not going to be the Roman Empire run by me. And certainly while we're on our way there, we're not going to act like they do. Your vision and your idea of greatness is completely upside down. Jesus says. And so those who are great in the world exercise great power over those who are subject to them, and that for their own advantage. In fact, that's why power is so coveted, because you, you don't serve anybody. You get them all serving you. You're in charge, and everybody exists for you, as the Romans did as we can do, as James and John wanted to do. <laughs> they wanted to sit on the throne while somebody else served them. Jesus says that the greatness of this, or this kind of greatness, has nothing to do with greatness with God. And that this kind of greatness, he says, which is practiced for the purpose of gaining a personal advantage, ought never to be practiced amongst those who call themselves disciples of Jesus Christ. Never! It's out of place! It doesn't belong here, Jesus is saying. As he says, notice verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. And so greatness with God has nothing to do with worldly greatness. Indeed, greatness with God, greatness as God sees it, greatness as God practices it, as enfleshed in Christ, is unique. Indeed, Jesus himself is the very embodiment 
of what it means to be great with God. And to be a disciple of Jesus is to be great. And to be great as he is great. Indeed, notice verse 42 again. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you. But whoever, who, whoever of you would be great must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you as servants must be servant of all, slave of all, doulos. Verse 45, 4. And here's the reason why, you guys. James, John, and all the rest of you. Because even I, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. To give my life away that I might be, deliver those who are being held hostage and who are condemned because of their sin. And so to be great with God is to be a servant to others. <laughs> and to be the one who's the greatest is the servant or the slave of everybody. <laughs> and Jesus is the model. Jesus is the standard. And apparently no other standard will do. Well, not with God anyway. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Working the Angles, the Shape of Pastoral Integrity, wrote this. He said, anytime we, are, are, anytime we are beyond ourselves, we are, by whatever means, closer to God. Listen again. Anytime we are beyond ourselves, by whatever means, we will find ourselves <laughs> closer to God. Indeed, the beginning, getting beyond ourselves is key because it's impossible to be full of God when we're full of ourselves. Indeed, if we would be true disciples of Christ, we must empty ourselves as he did. And those who do, those who do empty themselves require no pity from those who don't because in God's eyes, those who do are great. I close as I did, I think, maybe last Sunday with Philippians chapter 2, Paul writing about this very same thing. From prison to the believers in Philippi, Philippians 2 and begin at verse 5. And he said to these believers in Philippi in the first century, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Have, have the mindset that he had, who as already existed, who all, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and being born in the likeness of men, humanity, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. And for this reason, 
God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Isn't it extraordinary? He made, in fact, in the King James, for the phrase, he emptied himself, the King James says he made himself of no reputation. He wasn't seeking a great name for himself. He's emptying himself, making himself of no reputation. He is the, he is the chief doulos, the chief slave, and dies as a slave on the cross to save humankind. And because he did that, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And perhaps if you listen closely, you can hear Jesus saying to each one of us, and follow me. Follow me. Empty yourself so that the Father can raise you up and fill you up and honor you for living in the way that he's called us all to live. Worldly greatness and greatness with God. Let us pray. It's sort of an amazing thing, Lord, that a thing that all of us can manage is just the very thing that you call us to do that we might have what we otherwise seek in other ways and even if we find something that seems similar to it to remember that we bring nothing into this world and we take nothing out and whatever it is that we might gain and what we might call Greatness, as the world defines greatness, will all be stripped away. And all that we have when we stand before you in the day of judgment is our character. But even now, today, if we haven't been doing it much already, today is the day that we can begin doing this very thing. This giving ourselves away to find that when we come to our therefore, or for this reason, God highly exalts that that day will come and that you will be pleased and we will be pleased, which we would normally define as a win-win situation. Thank you, Lord, for every day. Every, every day provides its opportunities to serve, to be patient, to be loving, to be humble. And we pray, Lord, by your grace, you'd enable us to do it and to ke- come to a vision to see what you see of the things that we've described here, even as they came from the lips of Jesus himself, in whose name we pray. Amen.